It turns out Congress has been doing more than just raising money for their next re-election on where the money is. So Tyler, we're back. It's Thursday. Energy materials. Um, kick been a off. Pretty interesting subject this these past couple of weeks. A lot of stuff going on. It's there has been, been a fun. lot of stuff going on. You know, prices sliding. Um, not really passing it on to the consumer yet. Uh, new elections. People wondering how that's going to affect the certain uh, industries, especially energy. Um, and one re one way we've seen is the Senate's actually been doing some studies. Surprise, surprise. About the banks. Surprise, surprise, digging into the to Wall Street a little bit, something that you don't typically see. And they've unearthed some findings about some of the biggest banks and the entanglements with the commodities market that maybe investors aren't too aware of and, and maybe should be because it is kind of frightening. Sure. So, you know, normally we're an energy show, so talking about Congress and the banks doesn't mm -hmm. seem to make a whole lot of sense here. But what's going on is there was a Senate probe that was looking into some of the major banks, your Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan's, and looking at their commodities trading business. And what they are investigating is whether or not these banks were using their knowledge of hard assets because they actually own things mm -hmm. uh, in the business. For example, Goldman Sachs owns a Colombian mine and <laughs> things like that. Warehouses you with what? aluminum. Yeah, just a bunch <laughs> of random hard assets out there. And having that knowledge of those hard assets and what's going on with them and then using that knowledge uh, to trade in the commodities right. market. And they're going so far as to say that they're actually kind of communicating with each other to manipulate the price of commodities. And so there's this weird financial kind of dealings going on right now. As with every single financial probe, it's really fuzzy and mm -hmm. some of the evidence is, is tough to really, you know, parse out, I guess you could say. But I think the really, to boil this all down for an investor, if you were to read any of this, to me it says, don't ever <laughs> touch the commodities market. Do not, well, not in the sense that don't try to speculate on prices, the be trading on futures like yeah. or commodities, anything like that, because there are so many factors working against you. you know, these people know what, pretty much know what commodity prices are going to do because mm -hmm. they're, they have the hard assets and they have that information that you don't. And trying to place bets on that end is almost impossible. Yeah, you kind of retrace it back even to um, fixed currencies when you see Barclays getting in there with the LIBOR rate and then also with uh, you know, the, the pound and everything. They're trading on that with insider information. And so you kind of have to return back to equities. People get worried about high frequency trading and the algorithms taking over in the equity market. But at least it's not this backroom dealing of owning um, the equity market and understanding what's going to come of these companies. Um, I don't know. What, what does Goldman Sachs know about mines? I, they, they, maybe it's an investment, but you're right. I mean, they, they, they're figuring out what's, what's next, what the, mar what the market's doing, because this mine is in the business of buying and selling as well. So a little bit of uh, insider knowledge there. And it's worrisome. And you're talking big money when you're talking about investing in futures. Um, a lot of leverage involved. So yeah, investors could really get tripped up there. And uh, to see the Senate come in there, maybe it draws a little bit more attention, but who knows how hard they're going to be. This kind of goes back to the old Motley Fool adage, you know, buy companies, own them for a <laughs> long right. time, and you can kind of almost wipe all of this stuff off. Uh, moving on to our next subject, which is really kind of an interesting one, almost on the fringes of energy mm -hmm. again, it's fuel efficiency, and more specifically, the fuel efficiency of airlines. Yeah. We've talked a lot about cars, you know, how they're becoming more efficient because of market forces, but at the same time, they're getting forced to do mm -hmm. it uh, through some of these new CAFE standards. Airlines, on the other hand, have not 
quite gotten there yeah. in some sense, especially certain carriers. You look at some of the old legacy fleets, they are running very, I guess you could say, fuel inefficient vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, planes in comparison to some of the newer people. So why don't you kind of break this down a little bit more? Why is this, why are some of these other guys not doing it? Yeah, well you look at this and uh, it used to be a big thing for car manufacturers to take that first step because it was an advantage for them. Being, you look at a lot of the Asian manufacturers, Toyota, Honda, they'd come out and be the most fuel efficient and people would buy them for that reason. Now because of the cafe standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards where every company is going to have to have an average fleet fuel efficiency of about 55 miles per gallon by 2025. Um, so now everyone's on board. So it's not really an advantage anymore. But when you look at airlines, it still is an advantage. Some of the cheapest airlines out there to fly, Southwest, JetBlue, and Frontier, they are seeing the greatest advances in fuel efficiency um, in the last couple of years, last year especially. And, and it flows right down to the consumer. And so I think that that's important to take note of when you look at a lot of the bigger carriers ones that have been bankrupt or on the verge of bankruptcy in the past, they're just not making the investments. Um, American Airlines actually became less fuel efficient in 2013 than it did in 2012. So they're taking, step taking steps backward even. And um, that's a little disheartening because they do have money now. They are performing well in the stock market. And um, you know, airlines and flights have become a bit bigger part of society now. International travel um, is, is growing, especially at our, people of our age and millennials want to get out there and travel. And what you see them doing is taking Southwest and JetBlue and Spirit Air and those, those airlines that are directly tackling this head on. Um, and you have to understand that American Airlines is significantly bigger than Southwest and JetBlue and Frontier but they're just not making the investments necessary. And that also kind of flows back into the, the parts manufacturers like a GE or a Boeing or somebody that's building the, the actual engines and turbines that are driving these planes forward. But the airline has to put some pressure on them as well um, to improve this. So um, I think that you know eventually it's gonna have to as these older planes are retired, but it's kind of disheartening to see these people take steps backwards. But the EPA might step in. Uh, they're doing a study and it should be released next April they could step in and enforce some of the same things they're doing with, auto, with uh, the automotive sector. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see just simply because it's, for in, in comparison to what's been going on in the automotive industry, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a sad thing to see this kind of falling backwards, especially when you go to any, you listen to any conference call about an airline, you, you go to any industry presentation, and all they seem to care about is fuel prices. Right. But, but they're not making the uh, investments in fuel efficiency. It's kind of... Yeah, bags little, are becoming more expensive, meals, you have to pay for your peanuts eventually, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, we're taking steps backwards and um, just to see this. And, and now with fuel prices a lot lower, you kind of wonder if, they're, if it's just going to postpone this even further with oil prices now in the 70s because that's the number one cost for these airlines is fuel. And if, if it stays low for a while, they might just decide, hey, we're sitting pretty right now. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to our last subject. Uh, it Kind of one of those ones we don't necessarily want to talk about anymore, <laughs> yeah, but we're no. con almost contractually just obligated got a knife because back. it just keeps coming back. It's like a zombie that <laughs> will not die. It's the Keystone XL. Uh, this week we had sen the Senate uh, vote down mm -hmm. uh, another proposal. For slightly. It was slightly. Oh, margin, it was yeah. a very narrow margin, yeah. but it still got voted down in the Senate. Um, after the upteenth time that Congress, <laughs> right. uh, the House of Representatives approved it. Um, and people are still asking a lot of questions about this. Uh, do you see a lot of major changes in this going on right now? Like, what are some of the things that actually matter with this? 
Well, right now, not a lot does matter. Prices of oil are low. Canadian oil sands are one of the first areas to go if oil prices stay this low or go any lower. And railroads have picked up the slack. So in my mind, Keystone XL and TransCanada really missed the boat to no fault of their own because it wasn't up to them. They're ready to go. If Congress approved, they'd have shovels in the grounds and, and be digging and laying this pipe. But um, I just don't see it being a meaningful expansion necessary um, if the status quo remains as it is right now. Yeah, maybe if, if, if we see a few more railroad collisions or, or derailments and then regulations crack down on them, there are talks that um, the, the need for new tankers on the, on the rail lines is so, so high that they can't even get the supply there for the next three to five years. So if, if production does surge, Suncor announced that they're going to increase production uh, next year, kind of caught a lot of people off guard with the low prices. Um, so if the rail gets over, overburdened, Maybe it makes sense, but that's tough to say. And this is a over a billion dollar project. It's going to take three to five years, so um, it's very murky. Um, I don't know if it makes as much sense as it did six to seven years ago. It's it's a really odd thing. Uh, for, when I look at it, at least from the U.S. perspective, uh, you know, like we said, we got rail coming online. We had some uh, pipe expansions with Enbridge. Basically, mm -hmm. the mechanics of the Keystone XL pipeline are in place. Like, yep. There's enough capacity that we're moving the equivalent of the Keystone XL pipeline into the United States mm -hmm. now. Uh, one of the things that I look at it now, and I just say this is. Now, it almost has nothing to do with business and economics anymore. It is purely a, a political dog. Yeah, it's fight. a game. They, they want, somebody wants to win yeah. this, regardless if it actually has any effect whatsoever. It's almost like we'll call it the pipeline to nowhere yeah. <laughs> right. sort of effect. Um, and one of the fascinating things, and I guess it's almost like my axe to grind with this sub subject that we've been talking about for so long, is one of the big things they talk about now is job creation. It's always been, you know, this idea of job creation with this sort of pipeline thing. And the thing that's so frustrating is the numbers that so many people spurt out that go on with this, th those are built on economic models that were made back in 2008. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the situation that we were in 2008, you got pr oil prices at $120, everyone's terrified of peak oil, it's yeah. still spiking. Uh, United States is heading down into a recession, unemployment is, is ramping up. So it looks like it could be a, a game changer in yeah. terms of economic benefit and things like that. But now we're looking at $70 barrel of oil. It's crazy how things could change. So unemployment fast. rate in North Dakota is 1%. We've uh, exceeded oil production by more than 3 to 4 million barrels since then, mm -hmm. barrels per day since then. And so it almost seems like any study that has been done on the Keystone XL pipeline, and, and if anybody tells you any study that's been done, throw it out the window That's right. because the economic models on that are just absolute junk. And the southern leg, which was vitally important to release the glut from Cushing to increase the U.S. price a little bit, is already underway. It's, it's operating. And so maybe that's all we really needed was that southern leg to get more oil to the Gulf. You see the Energy East pipeline in talks in Canada to move Canadian oil sands to the eastern shores of, of Canada and the refineries out there. So. Maybe Canada doesn't even want to send more oil to the U.S. They already rely on us a little bit too much, in my mind, for oil exports. So, who knows? You're right. I think it's a political dogfight now. Well, I'm sure. We'll see it, in January. When uh, we'll talk about it again when the, the new Congress comes in and they vote on it again. That's so, right. until next time that we talk about uh, Thanksgiving, Keystone by the XL. Way. Yeah. Yeah, have a happy Thanksgiving because it'll <laughs> yeah. probably be the next time we talk to you guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Where the Money Is. See you next time. <laughs>